Peter recovered alcoholic. We are in the far turn, so hanging out with him. Um, <clears throat> I was just thinking, listening to Rich with the uh, phone call, the gentleman speaking Spanish and being down here, having shared this story in a long time. Um, way back when, I was newly sober. I was living in Bay Ridge, Brooklyn, and uh, <clears throat> decided to take a trip with uh, a woman who was soon to be my wife at the time to uh, a place called uh, Extapa, Mexico. And um, I called up New York Intergroup and tell me where the meetings are in Extapa, Mexico. They couldn't even pronounce it. They didn't have it. There was no meetings. They didn't know what to do. And uh, they said, why don't you call up Mexico City, their intergroup? And so I called from Bay Ridge, Brooklyn to Mexico City. I'm, like it was around the block. And um, the guy on the phone spoke Spanish and I speak English. And so when someone doesn't understand English, I don't know if you're like me, I talk loud. I think they'll get it, you know. And I'm looking for a meeting, and, and uh, then he starts, I think, arguing with me and cursing me out in Spanish. And um, I start hollering back at him, and I made like five phone calls. And uh, I finally get this other gentleman on the phone who spoke a little bit of English, and he said, uh, here's a gentleman who's uh, American. He lives down there. Give him a call when you get there. I call this guy. And he says, uh, well, we don't really have English-speaking meetings, but we'll get together in a coffee shop or something. And I said, okay, great. So when I get down there, um, this guy doesn't return his phone calls. He's, well, let's get together next week. And I said, I'll be home. So he's, well, there's a Spanish-speaking meeting in Zihuantanejo. And that was about close to an hour drive from my hotel. He said, I'm sure you run into someone who speaks Spanish, uh, speaks English. So I get in the cab and... Um, I don't know where I'm going. I'm trusting this cab, and uh, I go through the worst of the worst poverty I've ever seen up until that point. And I walk into this crowd of folks, and I remember taking my uh, uh, jewelry on and stuff. And um, in fact, I'm thinking about it now. I may have just gotten married, and uh, I didn't take my jewelry off because I was afraid of getting robbed. I just they had didn't have shoes to wear. You know, and I show up with, you know, nice clothes and, and jewelry. I didn't want to, like, flaunt that and make them feel uncomfortable. So I removed that stuff, and they look at me. And I'm asking if the meeting's there, and one gentleman waved to someone in the back, and this guy comes out who speaks perfectly good English. And his name was uh, Robert, and he had a brother who lived in Staten Island, of all places. And he was a chef back in on the West Coast, and he was dead at move his family back to California with him and um, we got to chat and I went into the meeting and uh, when it started and it was a two hour format but um, I caught the tail end of a, a business meeting was going on and um, a group conscious meeting and all these people they were speaking in Spanish the speaker was up in a pulpit it was 50, 60, 100 folks there and um, he was telling me what was going on and they would raise their hand. He says, that person just got to clean the bathroom commitment. Everyone give a round of applause because they took a commitment to clean the bathroom or do the coffee or whatever it was. And uh, so I went back about two nights later, and I saw my friend Robin. A few folks recognized me, and I sat in the back of the room. And um, the guy's up in a pulpit, and he points to the back for eight speakers, two hours. He points to the back, and my friend Robert goes, let's go. I says, go where? And he says, you're going to speak. I don't speak Spanish. He says, you speak and I'll interpret. And uh, it was one of the highlights of my sobriety. I got into this pulpit, and they're just looking at who's this guy. 
And I began to speak, and he interpreted for me, and I did a 20-minute talk, and he interpreted everything. And I stuck around, and um, I had all these newfound friends. It was the coolest thing in the world, AA, language of the heart. And I listened to Rich, and it was language of the heart. Um, it was fabulous. And this experience was, was terrific. Uh, interesting thing happened to me on the way to the meeting, though. Because I'm gung-ho about AA. I'm fairly new in sobriety, and I have the, the meeting address, AA meeting address. So I go down to the hotel lobby. All the cabs are lined up, and I grab the belt. Well, I spoke to the belt. And I said, I need to go here, but keep it quiet, because I'm going to protect, protect anonymity at all costs here. So he looks, and he goes, CCC, double A, double A. Uno momento. I says, but quiet. He walks away. He blows the whistle and yells out, Alcoholico, Alcoholico. <laughs> and everyone turned around and was staring at me. Women were grabbing their purses and their little children. And um, that was my experience of taking myself a little too seriously. You know? But it was a pretty neat experience of giving a talk like that. Um, it was interesting. At the time, I... I, I thinking, what am I going to talk to these folks about? Suddenly I didn't know what to talk about because of a language barrier. But he interpreted. And uh, when we, Bill said, when we speak from the heart, we touch the heart. Um, a lot of neat experiences along the way, and that's just one of them. Um, step 10 and 11, um, my sponsors had talked to me about working with what he called the strict spiritual disciplines in 10 and 11 because they are strict spiritual disciplines, spiritual laws with which we get to follow. And when we violate those laws, things happen to us. So what does that look like for me currently? Um, in the discipline of this work that we get to do, there's a tremendous amount of freedom. And so we don't ha even have to hit a home run every time with meditation and prayer, but in doing, I succeed. So it was for me to chop wood and carry wood and get in there and do this work, and um, I did. And uh, I, at the beginning I did it because I had to, and I, I better do it, and uh, it's what they tell me to do. But my whole life right now is a get-to. I get to pray, I get to meditate, I get to write inventory, I get to call a sponsor, I get to work with, I get to. Everything. Because the, al the, the alternative is drinking and dying again. And that came to me a handful of years into sobriety where I realized I get to do this. First time I sat in meditation, a woman who uh, uh, was not an alcoholic but had a very, uh, she used to teach meditation, very involved with this uh, uh, prayer meditation, and she taught me about meditation. Uh, my first sponsor was really good at it, but she was coming in from an angle I never heard before. And what she did for me, she put me on a timer of two minutes to meditate. And two minutes felt before the bell went off, felt like it was forever. And two minutes became five and seven and an eight, and somewhere in there I didn't need a timer, and I was having a life of meditation. Step 10 says, this thought brings us to step 10, which suggests we continue to take personal inventory, continue to sit right, any new mistakes as we go along. We vigorously commence this way of living as we clean up the past. This way of living, how do I live now? Step 10, throughout the book actually, but step 10 and 11 we'll use words like vigorously, at once, commence, now. You'll see those words about the big book, always implying action, taking action, taking action. I said earlier, the only time we get a time frame is one hour after step five. So it's about moving and growing and understanding and effectiveness. 
It says, I must continue to watch for uh, selfishness, dishonesty, resentment, and fear. And when these crop up, I don't have to go share about them at a meeting. The first thing I need to do is turn back to the power. We turn all things into the Father of light. So I turn to God first. Then it tells me, go discuss it with someone and make amends quickly if I've harmed anyone. Quickly, which means right away. Not usually on my calendar, but on God's calendar. Perhaps when that person is ready to receive it, but I must be willing to make amends for harm I caused you right now. Not a week or a month from now. It says, I turn my thoughts to someone I can help. Love and tolerance of others is my code. Um, it's interesting how much love and tolerance I do not practice if I'm gossiping about someone. Um, turn my thoughts to someone we can help. I was working, I was doing HR work a, a bunch of years ago, and um, in this company there was a gentleman, I never went to college, and there was a gentleman who was uh, uh, training me, who reminded me every day of him going to university. He reminded me every day that he was a college graduate and I just got through high school. And I was intimidated by him, and part of me wanted to, quite frankly, punch him in the mouth a few times. I didn't like coming to work because of him. And I would character assassinate and, and just be spiteful, very like the, uh, passive aggressive. And this was not good for me, trying to work, uh, 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 live a life like this. And I shared some inventory with my sponsor, and he gave me some instructions about praying for forgiveness. And my prayer was, thank you, God, for the willingness to forgive this man and the willingness to go make amends for some of my shenanigans. Interesting thing, I came into work one day and I sat, in, I sat down with him and I said, I need to make amends to you for a couple of things I've done. And uh, what, what followed was pretty interesting. Uh, the intimidation that I felt with him was removed. Um, we'll probably never go for dinner again, but I was able to, I was big in the recruiting, going to universities, recruiting kids to come to work for us. And he and I were able to work side by side on a couple of recruiting plans and where to go to and things like that. And all of that stuff, that, that thing that was between him and I, he still didn't like me. And he's not my best friend, but the, that, that thing in the middle between the two of us was removed. And then going to work wasn't this, oh my God, if he's going to be there, I just went to work and I did my job. And I was able to be eyeball to eyeball with him because I was able to clean that up right away. As soon as he revealed to me an inventory what needed to be done. Sometimes in our rooms and, and uh, how we do step 10 is entirely up to you. I was brought up in AA that my step 10 is what I'm doing during the day. And some of us call conclusions of the mind as to, okay, where we went off and we discuss it and we make some prayer. And that's fine if that works for you. I was brought up in, if I have a resentment at 9 o'clock or 10 o'clock or 2 in the afternoon and I have the opportunity after prayer, I put that stuff on paper. Inventory is inventory. And that, you, that may not fly with everyone, but that's how I was brought up that I'll write that. And my 11-step review is my net for anything I missed on a day or any fears I have going into tomorrow. So I'll sit and I still do it. I still do it. I'll, you know, I'll go to lunch. I'll take maybe 45 minutes or whatever it is at lunch and I'll have some lunch and I'll sit down and review my morning. Anything disturbing me about anything? Am I losing my center at any point? And I just get out an notepad and write some four column inventory to be discussed with the sponsor or someone else. Our book talks about, we says, we, in September, we discuss it, the resentment or the fear, whatever it might be, with someone immediately. 
And so what I started years ago was an immediately group, three people, like a triangle, a sponsor and two people I can depend on, trust, and count on, right? And so I'll call up Joe and say, Joe, I can't get a hold of my sponsor. I have not immediately. Can you discuss this? And he can do that with me. I give them spiritual consent and vice versa. So I'm always on board with whatever needs to be discussed with others. And the result of that is a tremendous amount of freedom throughout my day. When the carpenter said, wear the world like a loose garment, I'm able to experience that because the slate is clean. Right? Kind of looking at four through nine in one step every day. It says, I cease fighting anything or anyone, even alcohol. This is where a lot of our meetings will split down the middle. Because <clears throat> we'll be told it's always it's normal to think about a drink because you're an alcoholic. You're always going to be thinking about a drink because you're an alcoholic. And my book pretty much contradicts that. It's been many years I sit back and I, I don't remember the last time I sit back and said I like to have a cold beer on a hot day. Like, it's been removed. I don't sit and debate and romanticize or any of that stuff. I see that alcoholic abusers, you know, on the plane, they have these little Mickey Mouse things and they don't even finish it. Alcohol abuse, they just sit it. You know, they look at it, they read their magazine, they look at it, they read their magazine. It's like, you know, five parts water, six parts ice and a, and a shot, you know. And they take it and you hear, ah, like what the hell they just did. You know, I, I don't identify with that. And they go back to reading their magazine, you know. It says, we cease fighting anything or anyone, even alcohol, for by this time, sanity will have returned. In step two, they talked about coming to believe that a power greater myself can restore me to sanity. It's a pointer to the solution. And we do some work, and somehow we land, they deliver the contract, we land in step ten, where sanity has been returned, it's a ten-step promise. I have wholeness of mind, which is synonymous with truth, which is synonymous with God. Can't get drunk on the truth, can't get drunk with an experience with God, can't get drunk with wholeness of mind. Wholeness of mind keeps me from putting my hand on a hot stove. When I'm lying to myself, I'll put both hands on and expect different results, not to get burned. Wholeness of mind, sanity, God, truth. It's been delivered. It's been given to me by the removal of self. Actually, it was always present. As I said earlier, we've accumulated stuff. And we live based on a lot through the thinking mind. Now the mind's removed. There's no thought required to live a life of abundance in a spiritual path. There's no thought needed. I plan. I plan accordingly. I have goals. But as soon as I start to think about stuff, it's usually coming from fear which is always in the future anyway. It says, I'll be seldom interested in liquor. If tempted, it's a big F, if tempted, I recoil from it as from a hot flame and I react sanely and normally. And I find that this has happened automatically. I don't have to think the drink through. I don't have to play the tape to the end. I don't have to keep it green. I don't have to remember where I come from. I don't have to go into a detox to remember what it was like or go take a prison commitment not to be of service to remember what it was like. I don't have to do any of that stuff. There's no thought required. It just happens automatically. This is assuming I'm in spiritually fit condition. I will see that my new attitude toward liquor has been given to me without any thought or effort on my part. No thought or effort on my part. So I have to say, okay, I'm going to think this through to the end, how bad it was in the places. If I start doing by the time I get to the end, I'm going to go, you know what, it wasn't too bad after all. So God takes the loaded gun out of my hand. I will see that my new attitude toward liquor has been given to me without any thought or effort on my part. It just comes, this is the miracle of it. I'm not fighting it, nor uh, neither am I avoiding temptation. 
I feel as though I've been placed in a position of neutrality, safe and protected. I haven't even sworn the stuff off. How many times I would get a Mr. Boston Blackberry brandy bottle and throw it against the wall and curse it and curse myself and say, that's it, I'm done, and ten minutes later say, that was a bad move, I need to get money to go drink. Right? I don't have to do that anymore. I feel as though I've been placed in a position of neutrality, safe and protected. I haven't even sworn off. Instead, the problem has been removed. It doesn't exist for me. I'm not cocky or afraid. That is out their experience. This happens to me when I'm in fit spiritual condition. The problem has been removed. I am recovered from a seemingly hopeless state of mind and body. So that I'm not one looking to be a recovering anything anymore because recovering is experiencing the big devilments. I'm not drinking. I'm recovering. I'm still in the process of recovering. I'm going to have good days and bad days because I'm recovering. Recovering from a surgery. Not too much pain today. Today, tomorrow's a lot of pain, and I'm waiting for it to get better. You know, recovering from alcoholism. I'm still afraid of losing depression. I feel euphoric. I hate her. I love her. I hate my job. I love my. It's this roller coaster of emotions that determine how I be. That's bondage to self. Getting recovered not only from a seemingly hopeless state of mind and body has been my experience with no thought about drinking or any other substance but recovered from the isms that accompany alcoholism. We get free. Page 25 talks about the great fact that we've had deep and effective spiritual experiences which have revolutionized my whole attitude toward life, my fellows in God's universe. That's everything. My perceptions and conceptions about life have shifted by the time I get to 10. And the very things that bothered me back then are not a problem at all anymore. My selfish and self-seeking motives they talk about on page 62 have become less about me and more what I, how I can be of service. The same way I was driven to drink I move to serve. I'm not my own way anymore. I've been recovered. Then it warns me not to let up on my spiritual program of action, not 90 meetings in 90 days, because I'm headed for trouble if I do, if I rest on my accomplishments of yesterday or last week, my laurels. So I can get on a plane on Sunday and say, wow, this was a great experience. Boy, oh boy. Fun fellowship. Really good deal. And then take the three months off of next three, next three months off of AA because of this experience. I'm headed for trouble if I do. Monday I'll be back at a meeting. Monday morning I'll be back at work. I'm going to chop wood and carry water. It says if I rest on my laurels I'm headed for trouble for alcohol is a subtle foe. Now, I didn't go to college, so I had no idea what the word subtle meant, and I certainly didn't know what foe meant. So my sponsor was one for always saying, well, get a Webster's Dictionary and look it up. I'm not going to tell you. And so subtle is sly, clever, devious, and difficult to detect. And foe is a personal enemy. That's what I'm up against. It lays in the bushes out there and says, you don't need to write inventory and stay away from your sponsor. Just tell other people you got one. Don't worry about prayer. I got your back. And little by slow, you start to drift away from the very thing that was getting us well, resting on my laurels, and then I have a double in my hand and saying, how will this start? Every day is a day must carry a vision of God's will and all my activities. 
thank you, God, for showing me how to carry the vision of your own term activities. We can have a whole meeting just on that. You know, have a page and a half of incredible information. I wonder how meetings we go to and the topic is that. How many meetings we go to and we talk about growing and understanding and effectiveness. What's that look like? How can I best serve you, God? Your will, not mine, be done. And it says, these are thoughts which must go with me constantly, not when just AAs are looking at me, but constantly. Whether I'm at the grocery store, putting gas in my car, playing with the kids, whatever I'm doing, these thoughts must, must go with me constantly. What thoughts? Father, how can I carry the vision of your will into all my activities? You know what I found? If we're in the sunlight of the Spirit, as our book talks about, and we're in that, that fourth dimension of existence, I don't need to remember to do any of this stuff. It's an internal reorganization. It's how I live now. It's who we be. I don't need to remember to be kind and compassionate to you. I need to remember to be polite to you. I don't need to remember to help another drunk or the little old lady across the street. It's what we do, a life of service. In the world to play the role God has assigned me. It's the proper use of the will, my book tells me. And there's a difference between me managing my life and proper use of the will. If my rules align with God, I throw everything I have at something. For example, um, I'm working, I get a newcomer who wants me to sponsor them. Proper use of the will. Everything I got, I'm going to throw at that newcomer. Everything I got. When I go to work, I work in a treatment center because there's very sick people. Everything I have, I throw at them. Without a motive to make me look good proper use of the will. Managing my own life is I'm going to do this so I look good, so there's a payoff. I'll get a bigger bonus from my boss if people get well or whatever it might be. I'll generate more admissions, not to help people so I get more money. It's a completely different motive that's generating the whole thing. When we're one with God, we just move. And I found there's a rhythm to this God stuff for me. There's a movement within. It's a stillness that just moves. And we come from, we start to operate from stillness, no longer noise. What the book, quite frankly, what the book has done, all the fellowshipping, all the service, all getting recovered in the book, all the things we get to do, I get to do in Alcoholics Anonymous, has taken me to one place, and that is stillness. Operating from that place. Whether I'm doing three or four things at once, or just sitting by the pool, it's all coming from stillness, which is my natural, our natural state of beingness anyway. Stillness, quiet, there's no noise. I create noise, I get attached to noise, I'm attracted to noise. My natural state of beingness is stillness. That's where I get to hear God, in the quietness. Which brings me to giving attention to this power in the practice of meditation. Too many means I've gone to is well, prayers, listening, uh, prayers, speaking, and listen, and, and meditations, listening. That's all you got. It's a whole dimension of existence I couldn't even dream about or even fathom until I get to experience what it's like living in the world of the spirit and working with the life of, of meditation. My current practice has been this way for quite some time now. And this I just moved to do. I, 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 on awakening, I, I hit my meditation mat, and I've worked with all sorts of things, and I've just been in silence with this. I pray, and I go into sacred silence of meditation, and I get about my day. My meditations are 
anywhere from 15 to 30 minutes. I'm not, I used to try to be in charge of what the time looks like. I'm going to stay in meditation for 20 minutes and make sure I go to AA and tell everyone I meditate for 20 minutes, so I should be knighted a guru now. But God may need, may need me in there for 45 minutes one day, maybe 10 minutes, and there's things to do. I don't know. I'm not in charge of that. I'm not managing my life. When I start to manage how long I'm going to stay in meditation when I'm on this path a while, I have a problem in the second half of the first step. I'm managing my meditation. So I go in, and I wait. And I work some exercises in it, and I sit. In the afternoon, I work with the religious practice. I do some prayer from my religious upbringing, and then back again I go into sacred silence. So I take a God break during the day, and what I do for a living, i got to take a God break, and I get to take a God break unless I want to you know, burn out. So I'll close my office door, and I'll take ten minutes, and I'll do this prayer stuff, and I'll sit in meditation, and I go back out and finish my day. And when I get home at night, I'll do the same thing. I'll do a nightly review. I'll make some prayer. I'll go into meditation. I'm done. And I retire at night. Could be fun. Usually uh, on Wednesdays, I'm home. I'm on the phone with my sponsor and a couple of guys call me. And I'm usually home on Wednesdays. I started this new workshop. So Wednesdays has become Thursdays now. And I'm in. I'm in for the night. And so around 7 o'clock or 7.30, after having some dinner, I'll do my 11-step practice. Rather than waiting till Leno's on and fall asleep and never getting it done, right? So what I'll do, and I'll sit down, and I give it its dignity. I get a nice notepad, a pen, and, and I start to write what went on during my day that hasn't been resolved. What's, what's still pushing on me that needs to be discussed? The whole process takes like 10 minutes to write a little inventory. Small price to pay for complete freedom and keeping the slate clean. And then I can start to hear when I'm clear, right? When I first started working with uh, meditation and prayer, I used to have all these books, uh, Daily Reflections, um, uh, 24-Hour Day Book, uh, Prayers If You're From Brooklyn, New York. Got a picture of a Godfather on the cover. Um, all these different prayer books that I would work with, Upper Room, all, these things, all great things, right? And I would read them. But what happens is we can become attached to the methodology rather than having an experience with God. I remember a few times leaving my house and went, oh, wow, I forgot to read that page. and have to turn back and read the page so I could feel okay to leave the house. There was an attachment there, and it was becoming a chore rather than a get to do this. Same thing with all the things I would burn, incense and candles, which is fabulous. I still love to do that, but it became an attachment too. And so in reflection one time, I, I realized I'm attached and I shut down everything. No reading. It's just me and God, hitting my knees with prayer and then going into meditation. And we start to experience a deeper level of consciousness with this power. Kind of walking with God. And not relying on a thinking mind anymore. No mind equals total presence equals peace. That's what I've come to find out. No mind equals presence equals peace. When I'm present, there's no problem in this moment, is there? It's what's going to happen later on. I can't believe what I did an hour ago. There's my problem, which is where my mind loves to go over and over and over again. 
My book tells me on awakening, let me consider 24 hours a day uh, ahead. I consider my plans for the day. Before I begin, I ask God to direct my thinking, especially asking that it be divorced from self-pity, dishonest, and self-seeking motives. Under these conditions, I can employ my mental faculties with assurance because God gave me a brain to use. I'm on a completely different level now. I'm not operating out of me. I'm operating out of God, which is stillness. It says, in thinking about our day, I may face indecision. I may not be able to determine which course to take. What do I do? I turn back to God for inspiration. On the next page, it says, when uh, doubtful or agitated, I pause. And I found pause can be a beat. Take a deep breath. Pause can be a while. It's not to react but be present. So I pause and wait. And sometimes when I pause, I need to seek counsel as well. Right? A couple more things because um, a few of you guys are meditating on me. So um, a few more things. Through the practice of meditation, there's been a whole bunch of things in my life that have become resolved. Um, I grew up with a mom who was alcoholic and addicted to pills. And after several attempts of trying to take a life, she succeeded when I was 14. And I woke up on January 23, 1973 to horror. My dad's a, a real tough guy from South Brooklyn. Uh, that type A personality, man's man, uh, John Wayne and Dirty Harry and, and Tony Soprano rolled into one. Uh, tough guy. Uh, never saw him shed a tear, never saw him back down from the fight. He was just fearless. Uh, on, Jan on January 23rd, 1973, I woke up to hear my dad wailing to a 911 call. And when my grandparents came up, because they lived downstairs, my dad crying to his mom like he was a 15-year-old kid. I was in total terror and fear that morning, literally frozen in fear in the bunk of my bed. Uh, not only hearing hear him say to the police, I think my wife is dead, but telling to his mom, Joe's dead, her name is Josephine, and him crying, just heaving. Those two things were way too much for any kid to hear. This rock dissolved, and this woman who my world revolved around was gone. What do you do with this? And I remember being frozen. And I think at some point in there, this guy called God, who mom told me loves me, all things are possible with God. Show me how to pray. And took me to all my all the uh, 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 Catholic uh, services. Um, I said, you know what? This guy, God, isn't so nice. He's a trickster. He's cruel. He's kind of separated in a sense. Um, so for years, I wondered like about this whole deal. They told me, Mom went to heaven. What is heaven? I can't grasp heaven. How did this happen? And. Um, I one day, one evening, uh, before I got thrown out of this, this apartment I was living in, was in this place of blind drunk and just talking and talking gibberish. Sitting on the edge of the bed, I remember rocking and just talking and crying and just going on and on and on. And I was, I guess, semi-conscious. But I remember looking up and cursing God and then making a plea to God, if you send my mom down to me right now, I just want to hold her. I didn't get a chance to say goodbye. You know, you SOB, you took her from me at 14, right? And I said, if you do that and I can hold her, I'll stop drinking. Well, that didn't happen. So I get sober. And... Um, Early in sobriety, 
this selfish, self-seeking, self-centered drunk gets moved, no thought on my part, to go back to my religious community, not to attend service, but just go when no one was there and light these two candles, and one was for the sick and suffering in and out of rooms, and light a candle for mom. Make a prayer, get out. Once, twice a week. Once, twice a week. Faithfully. Around nine years of sobriety, thereabouts, I'm working with prayer meditation now. It's part of my life. And uh, I go into meditation like I would any morning. And the meditation, God, God reads our heart, can hear the soul when it's weeping, knows when things are unresolved and needs to resolve, but needs to have the ground fertile. And I get the ground, ground fertile by chopping wood and carrying water. With me? So around nine years or so of sobriety, I go into meditation. And what's delivered to me by this loving God changes my life forever. So much so that... Although I'm not signing up to die because I love being here, I used to have a great fear of moving on, and I don't anymore. Because my Heavenly Father let me peek over the fence and see paradise. And that came, that came to in a meditation where I was sitting, I love the water, I love the beach, it's safe for me, it's God for me. And God placed me down in South Florida across the street from the beach, that's where I live. So I'm sitting on this beach in this meditation, and what appears coming from me is my higher power walking towards me across this beach. And he's walking from the water to me and appears out of his chest, which really for me symbolized the oneness we get to experience on this path, and not two-ness or separateness, appears a vision of my mom looking as healthy as, as ever. Very nice looking woman, my mom. She looked beautiful. She comes out of his chest. And what happens here is uh, I turn into this little eight year old boy. Between ages eight and ten were probably the worst times of my childhood because there were some things going on from a distant relative, very distant relative, with me that he should have been put in jail for. And I had this little, I think of an eight or ten year old kid. This little kid has got mom who's sick. This guy called that and being violated by this, this, this person. And so I appear to be eight or ten and eight years old in this meditation. My mom comes to me and kneels down on one knee and holds me like, like moms hold their little boys. I mean, that's, you can't even describe that when you're a kid. When mom puts you in a, in a, in a, in a hug, the world's a great place to be. Um, and that's what I got. And uh, she stood up, and I remember she was weeping in this, in this meditation. There were tears of joy, not sorrow for the first time. And my higher power looked at me eyeball to eyeball. No words were spoken, uh, but what I, the message I got was, she's okay, she's with me. And now I'm an adult, and my mom held on to me as a man now. And here's where everything changed. Because, God, see, God was hearing my prayers a bunch of years ago. Let me hold her one time. And my mom pointed off to the horizon, uh, and she pointed off to all these uh, lights, these flickering lights. And then she pointed off to the other side of the horizon, and there were all these flickering lights. I'm talking about hundreds of lights flickering. And she held on to me once more, and she turned, and her and my higher power walked away, and they became one. And I come out of meditation. And I will tell you, I don't know if this meditation was a two-minute meditation or 45 minutes. I have no clue. All time was lost. And it's interesting, when we're in that dimension in meditation, time doesn't have any influence at all. There is no such thing as time. Time, which I have to go to dinner, which I have to go to work, which I have to meet some friends, 
Spirit doesn't wear a watch. It just is. It is this moment. It is the isness of what is. So I don't know how long I was in there. When I came out, I was somewhat emotional. I, I, actually, I was weeping. Um, I got to see this and touch this, and, and, and it was very tangible. But I was confused about all the flickering lights. So I remember uh, calling up my sponsor, and I shared with him my experience that I just had. And um, Lord have mercy, uh, to have an awakened teacher, one who's on fire, one who walks this walk, who gets what we're doing. And I said to him what happened to me without missing a beat. He said, Peter, haven't you been lighting candles for your mom now about eight or nine years? I said, yes. He's okay. She let you know. She got them. So it was, re- it was received. And at that point, I remember becoming emotional because it broke down the last barrier between me and this power. I know now. One of the greatest things that's come to me through the practice of the 12 steps in prayer meditation is knowing that I am known by my Creator. I walk with my God. When I pray, yeah, I pray to God, but I pray with God. That my God is searching me out. I'm searching God and I'm seeking, I'm seeking, but my Heavenly Father is searching for me. My Heavenly Father is begging for a relationship with me, wants a relationship with me, will go to any less to have a relationship with me, and very often all I need to do is stop. Because we can get caught up in the methodology and worship the methodology rather than the power itself, and sometimes we need to just stop everything, just stop. There's a woman I study, and she went to her teacher, and she says, here's what's going on. He says, I know what's going on. He says, I want you to stop. She says, yeah, but tell me something to do so I learn how to stop. He says, no, stop. Just stop. Just worship the power. Stop. And we can get into inspirational books, which are fine, and meditation books, which are fine, and different ways to the inventory, and that's fine. But we get caught up, and we're worshiping this stuff. And what I'm doing is chasing my own tail, rather than just stop and be present to the moment with this power. And I experience abundance in that moment. I can say in an hour from now, maybe I'll have a moment of abundance. Or last year I had some abundance and an euphoric feeling with God. But what about right now? Because even the past was a now, and the future will be a new now. So what am I doing now? What am I doing to experience God? And the more prayer meditation and inventory I work with, the cleaner I am. It only drives me right back to being present with you. And I go out from there and grow in understanding and effectiveness. And we have our spiritual wings and we go serve. I work with lots of books. I've been quick to see where religious people are at. I've sought them out. Outside of Alcoholics Anonymous. I've said this from a million podiums. Of all the people I've sought out. Sought out many. Work with tons of books. The greatest teachers I've ever found for me have been members of Alcoholics Anonymous. Another drunk who became enlightened, who became wide awake. Those have been my greatest teachers. Everything I do takes me back to stillness and this moment. And when we can operate out of that, if you think about all the worldly clamors that are all up here, all the drama, all the noise, all the gossip, all the fear, all the resentment, skepticism, doubt, gets removed, I'm left with PCs and comfort. 
even through trials in life, because sometimes we will be pushed against the wall. Circumstances get dropped in our lap that we don't expect. The loss of a loved one, illness in the family, loss of employment, whatever it might be. Or the other thing where we come into lots of money in a great position, things will happen. Circumstances happen. How do I operate and move through it? Does God take care of my booze problem with the money, sex, and the other stuff I got on my own? I worked hard for this. I landed in AA. God presented that to me because it's God's money, it's God's job, it's God's car, it's God's universe. I get to play a role in that. How neat is that? I was awake enough to hear the invitation when it came. Completely revolutionized my entire life. And operating on a different level than I ever did before. So, because I like the effect produced by God, and I've been able to be of service to others, many others, I sat with my sponsor, and I said, get this thing every once in a while, it's time, and I'll go into prayer for it. And uh, so I just began going, began going through the work again. As I said earlier, I have no clue where I'm going to land with this and what's going to be revealed. But I'm not afraid of that anymore because I'm going to get clearer and be of maximum service to not only the Alfie, but anyone who comes into contact with me in my home occupation and affairs. And my job is to nourish the soul, get the soul food, get my spiritual wings, and off I go. And where God takes me, I take me. Uh, so that's all I got. Thank you.